0: be discussing lesson 168b. That's a new lesson. I just made it up. <laughs> Christ before Caiaphas part two. I got to rereading. That was a mistake. <laughs> rereading the passage and I thought, you yeah, know, there's too much I didn't include last week. Am I too loud? I sound awfully loud. Am I hurting your ears? It's okay. I don't know if they're not complaining. I... It's fine. But anyway, I got to thinking there's just too much uh, that we didn't cover and too much importance to this trial of the Lord Jesus Christ standing before Caiaphas, the second of the Jewish trials that the Lord went through. And this trial is so critical because this is where they found what they were looking for, a charge against him, even though everything they did to get it was illegal. But they did find the charge, and this is why he was brought To Caiaphas and a legal formal trial with the Sanhedrin in in the third trial, and all they did there was sentence him to what you know to, to death because they had found the sentence they were looking for in this second trial. So we're going to spend a little more time filling out details and, and reviewing some things, and uh, we're, not going to, we're not going to get into any new passages this morning. I did have us going to be discussing when they mocked him and blindfolded him and spit on him, but I didn't get to that yesterday, so I have to synchronize the studies, and so since I didn't cover it yesterday, we're not going to cover it today. So we're just going to do a little bit of a review, and I did give you some more questions because you already did the questions in your, in your book, so if everybody has one of these in front of you, I will be referring to it a couple times during our lesson, so have it handy. And you will notice that first question, number nine, is a repeat of the question in the book that we didn't get to. Guess what? We're not going to get to it again today. So you could just save nine for next week, or you could do it and discuss it in your groups, whatever whatever you feel led to do. But I'm not going to be discussing that first question this morning. Now, what I want to do before we jump into this study is reread the passage that we're going to be looking at. And I'm not going to reread Mark and Luke, but we will look at what Matthew has to say. So you can just stay parked in Matthew 26, starting at verse 57. Matthew 26. And beginning with verse 57, where it says, And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Now, what was missing in Matthew's account and also in Mark's account between verse 56 and verse 57? Verse 56, he was in Gethsemane. And then all of a sudden, verse 57, they're taking him to Caiaphas. What do we not see in Matthew and Mark and actually in Luke? The trial before Annas. The the co-reigning high priests of Israel were Annas and Caiaphas. One was the father-in-law of the other. So if you want to put a little bracket there between those two verses, if you didn't do that last week, you can put Annas' trial, John 18. John was the only one who gave us the information about that first trial where Annas was trying to stall for time and also find an accusation against Jesus, and he was unsuccessful in doing that. All right, skip verse 58 because that talks about Peter. And go down to verse 59 where it says, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. Amazing. They purposely sought for false witnesses. But they found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses and said, This fellow said... I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. They're trying to quote uh, Jesus there, what he had said back in John 2.19, but they misquote him, and Mark has the other witness, and he also misquotes him. In verse 62 says, And the high priest, that would be Caiaphas, arose and said unto him, Unto Jesus, answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. And what did Mark tell us that he also threw in? I am. Thou hast said, I am. His divine name, I am. And then he added this as well. He said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Well, it is very obvious from the Jewish trial proceedings of the Lord Jesus that Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin council were unprepared. They were very unprepared. If they had been prepared, they would have had a capital charge against Jesus um, already stated, one that would look legal. And also they would have had, what else, ready? Two witnesses who could testify to that charge and would agree in their testimony. But instead, we find them very unprepared. They had to act very suddenly. You notice all that? I mean, they're scurrying around. Annas is stalling for time so that the Sanhedrin quorum can meet in Caiaphas's palace and all that. But they're acting suddenly because, you see, they, they were approached unexpectedly by Judas earlier that night. They had already conspired with Judas that he would betray the Lord, but they were not going to do anything about Jesus during the Passover. They had already settled that issue, right? So when Judas arrived unexpectedly earlier that night, they were were shocked. Judas told them, I have just been with the Lord, and he knows. He knows. He basically told me he knows I'm going to betray him. I don't know how he knows, but he knows. So we, if we're going to act, we've got to act quickly. So they're scattering around, try to put, you know, put this whole thing together. And the result was, and remember, who is orchestrating all of this? Who's Jesus is because he's the one who told Judas, "What thou doest, do quickly. Get the ball rolling. I have to die at three o'clock on the Passover to be the perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb." <laughs> so he's orchestrating all of this, and the result is that these guys were unprepared and the result was an even more obvious exposure and indictment of their chicanery and their um, duplicity and everything, their hypocrisy. Well, in our discussion of Christ's informal trial before the high priest Caiaphas and an assembled quorum, they didn't need all the members, but they needed enough to make a quorum of the Sanhedrin council, which was held in his private residential palace, Again, an illegal thing. Not only was it held at night, but it was in a private home, which was illegal to have a trial like that. And by the way, this was obviously the same home that Annas and Caiaphas lived in. One was the father-in-law, one was the son-in-law. It was a big palatial residence there inside the city of Jerusalem. Probably one man and his family lived in one wing of the home, and the other man and his family lived in the other wing of the home. I don't know how it worked, but we know it was the same home. It didn't take very long to transport him from Annas to Caiaphas. Plus, here's the real key, Peter is down in the same courtyard of both homes during both trials. He's in the same courtyard, so obviously they shared the same home. But uh, in that discussion of that informal trial, we did run out of time to discuss what took place following hypocritical Caiaphas' renting of his outer garment and that theatrical display of horror <laughs> that he put on over Jesus admitting that he was, yes, both the Christ and the Son of God. Now, of course, that was exactly what uh, Caiaphas had hoped for, wasn't it? That's exactly what he wanted Jesus to do. He wanted to get an answer out of Jesus. So he, you know, he had been questioning him. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus didn't say anything. So finally, he thought, hmm, I'm going to put him under oath. So he put, he asked his question and said, I adjure thee by the living God. You know, are you the Christ? He wanted Jesus to admit to both being both the Christ and the Son of, uh, Son of God. So... That tells us that his display of shock, his pious little display of shock over the Lord's confession, Thou hast said, I am, was nothing but disingenuous drama. It was. He was just putting on a show. Error, error loves to use drama to hide its evil. You will notice that out in the world. They love to display drama to hide their evil. They put on a big show. That's all he's doing here. He was not concerned about God's honor. He was not at all concerned about God being dishonored by Jesus' blasphemy, as he called it. And uh, how do I know that? How can I say that dogmatically? That when Caiaphas put on his little show, rent his garment, which he shouldn't have done because it says in Leviticus, the high priest should never do that. And then he said, you know, blasphemy. And he acted so pious and so horrified that God of heaven had been dishonored by this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. How do I know that he was not really concerned about the honor of God and that he was playing the part of a hypocrite? Well, I know it because if Caiaphas had cared about the honor of God, then why, in the first place, was he even the high priest of Israel? He shouldn't have been the high priest of Israel, because the high priest who had been appointed to his office way back in 6 AD was Annas, his father-in-law, and how long should Annas have been the high priest according to God's own law? His whole lifetime. So Caiaphas should not have been the high priest. He should have declined that position, but what did he do instead to get that position? Well, he hobnobbed with the Romans. He compromised with the Romans and he probably paid a lot of money to get himself that position, over, you know, to have power over the people. And why, then, if he honored God so much, why was he in cahoots with his father-in-law, Annas, in using the temple and the sacrificial system to cheat the people and personally benefit financially? He was in with Annas You know, in turning the temple into a den of thieves. If he so honored God, would he have done that? And if he so honored God... Why did he predetermine the death of an innocent man? Remember back in John 11 after Lazarus' resurrection from the dead? They met together and he said, well, it's expedient for us that one man should die for the nation. They predetermined his death, even though they were never able to point to a single sin in his life. And why did he intentionally seek false witnesses against this innocent man? And why did he break God's laws as recorded in the book of Moses, books of Moses regarding justice? And a fair trial. Why did he, as the official head of the Sanhedrin, initiate a capital offense, which was strictly forbidden? Remember, they could only judge cases that were brought to them from an outside source, an outside party. But they initiated this trial. Why did he, the high priest, intervene in that trial? Which was also strictly forbidden. I didn't tell you that one last week, but he was supposed to be like the judge. You know, the court is in session, he's the judge. Does a ju- is a judge supposed to intervene in the proceedings? No, unless, you know, at certain times he does. But this one, this guy was leading the whole proceeding. That was strictly forbidden. Why did he rent his clothes? It's forbidden in Leviticus. Um, Why did he declare his decision, his decision, before asking the Sanhedrin members for their decisions? When the high priest was only to cast his vote after all the other members. Remember last week how we told you, or we discussed the fact that when they took a vote, guilty or not guilty, they would start with who first? The youngest members and go up to the oldest so that the oldest wouldn't influence influence the, the vote of the youngers and who was the very last person in that council to cast his vote it was supposed to be the high priest so he didn't you know so that he wouldn't influence anyone and if there was a tie you know the sanhedrin consisted of 70 members and if there was a tie 35 and 35 he would be the one who would break the tie but his vote was to be cast last here he does the opposite he says blasphemy And then he says, what do you think? (laughs) Trying to influence him, isn't he? All right. Also, why did he allow his prisoner to be so terribly mistreated? Following this trial, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week. These were all done in... All these things he did were done in disobedience to God's principles for proper justice. You see, his disobedience to God... When you disobey God's laws, you're dishonoring and disobeying God, right? So his disobedience to God dishonored God more than Jesus when he claimed to be the Christ and, and the Son of God because, really, Jesus was who he said he was. But he, Caiaphas really dishonored God way, way more than anyone could imagine. Of course, I can't say way more than Jesus because Jesus didn't dishonor God. Also, if he so honored God that he was horrified with Jesus' claim to be God, then why in the world didn't he settle the issue at once, immediately, by leading the Sanhedrin into an honest and a diligent inquiry into the truth or the falsity of his claims? You know, the scribes were the noted masters of Old Testament scripture. They were, you know, lawyers and they really knew their Old Testament. They were they were just masters of it. And the elders, do you know what they were supposed to do in a trial situation like this? The elders were charged with the defense of anyone who was facing a potential death sentence. So who should have been his defendants in this situation? The elders. They were there. They were part, you know, it said elders, chief priests. So instead of using these men to research Christ's messianic claims and also scriptures messianic declaration regarding the messiah's possible deity couldn't they look through the old testament and say hmm you know he just said the messiah all along would really be god Let's look back at that and let's think, of this. let's think this through. We never thought that before. We always thought he'd be a man like Moses, you know, a prophet like unto Moses, a good miracle worker like Elijah, but still just a man. Maybe he's showing us something we've just overlooked. Couldn't they have done an honest, diligent study of the Scripture to, to test not only his claims to being the Messiah, but also to being God? But instead of doing that, why did he and the council pay a man pay a man to betray Jesus, Judas. Why did they intentionally seek false witnesses to condemn Jesus? And why later on did they give a very large amount of money to Roman soldiers to lie about what happened at the empty tomb of Jesus? You can read about that in, in Matthew 28:13. They paid those Roman soldiers who were there at the tomb and told them what had happened, they paid them to lie and to say, well, we just fell asleep. And while we were sleeping, the disciples came and stole his body. That's a lie. That is. Those were tested Roman soldiers. They knew if they fell asleep on the job, they could be put to death. They didn't fall asleep. They saw exactly what happened and they reported that to Caiaphas. And I think Caiaphas understood and knew. What happened, and believed it, but he couldn't destroy his whole life in admitting it, could he? He was a Sadducee. What was one thing they did not believe in, the Sadducees? They didn't believe in the resurrection. If he had to admit to the resurrection of Jesus, then that would just destroy everything he ever was, and um, and and plus. You know, he had been responsible, basically, for putting this guy to death, so he wanted to hush it up. You see how he used money? And this is a crime, a shame, a terrible travesty, tragedy, because to this very day, most Jewish people do not believe in their true Messiah. Why? Because of the lies that went on during the time of Caiaphas and Annas. And to me, it's so ironic that Israel, to this day, because it's in their, what is it in their missionary somewhere, um, um, the, maybe it's in the Talmud, where they put a curse on the whole family of Annas and admit that they were wicked, evil high priests of Israel who had no business being the high priests. And they, they put a curse on them, and um, to this very day, they have no respect for them. They said that they made, literally, the temple. They, just, they turned it into a den of thieves. And yet these are the ones who pronounce Jesus guilty of death. And so they, you know, the poor Jewish people all these years have been misled. Really, it goes back to these two guys. If anybody is responsible, human-wise, for the death of Jesus, now we know God had it all planned from eternity past, but the two most guilty people that have ever lived, not Judas but these two guys, Annas and Caiaphas. So that's why, you know, spending more time talking about this. If Annas, if Caiaphas had loved and honored God, why did he not at least investigate Jesus's claims after all that undeniable evidence came forth regarding his resurrection from the dead? The reason is because the truth of the matter is that Caiaphas and the vast majority of the council were false religionists, false religionists. They were not true believers. Now, there were a few exceptions in that council. One was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He must not have been present during this trial. Now, remember, they didn't need to have all 70 members there. They only needed to have a quorum to um, take their vote and charge him of uh, blasphemy. Joseph of Arimathea probably, well, was not probably there because over in Luke 23.50 and also Mark 15.43, it tells us that he had not consented to their decision and to their deed Neither likely was another man by the name of, he was a Pharisee, Nicodemus, was probably not there that night either. Now remember, Nicodemus has already stood up on behalf of Jesus one time when the council got together and tried to destroy him. That was back in John seven fifty one, and he was trying to say, "Why are you trying to you know uh, destroy this man, charge this man when we haven't honestly, legally looked at his claims and his deeds?" He stood up on the behalf of the Lord and probably was not alerted about this secret meeting of the. Council. sure they didn't run and get Nicodemus because he would say, this is not fair, this is not legal, you can't have a trial at night, you can't have it in a private residence, you know. So they probably didn't get Nicodemus either. But there is nothing more evil. I'm going to make a, a profound statement here and think about it and see if you agree. There is nothing more evil than false religion. What sends more people to hell than Anything. False religion. No other field of the humanities, philosophy, the arts, literature, sociology, etc., has the potential for evil as false religion does. And here's another truth, and this is one of your homework questions to meditate on and then discuss. The more that false teachers try to cloak their teachings in the robes of biblical truth the more satanic they are. There are a lot of false teachers out there who will talk Bible talk. They cloak their false teachings in biblical... um, yeah, yeah, words. <laughs> but, you know, when you get right down to asking them what do you mean about by, by Christ and, and ask them to, um, uh, d- well, they usually don't talk about sin, they don't talk about the deity of Jesus, but that's what makes their, you know, they'll throw in a little bit of truth, but just one drop of poison is all it takes to leaven the, leaven the whole lump, right? And they'll have truth, but they'll be that... One little thing that they're leaving out, like sin or repentance or the deity of Jesus. So false, think about that and then comment on it and discuss that in your groups next time. The more false teachers try to cloak their teachings in the robes of biblical truth, the more satanic they are. And this is why the Bible continually warns about false teachers who can and fre- frequently do appear as what? angels of light. There are many of them standing in pulpits across this country. They look, you know, they have collars and they have all their attire on them and the ecclesiastical stuff that they do, but they're really angels of light. They're they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're hun- hiding Hiding under their cloaks of religious piety and self-righteousness and ritualistic traditionalism. Or as with the Pharisees, they're hiding under their ultra-legalism. And this is why Jesus spoke more harshly to the religionists of his day than he did to anyone else, didn't he? I mean, he didn't pull back any punches when he talked to them and pointed the finger and called them a bunch of hypocrites, they may have championed their version of Judaism, which uh, exalted the right God. Judaism does, you know, pure Judaism does exalt the right God, Jehovah God, the one and true living God, as opposed to, you know, all the pagan gods and goddesses and the idolatry of um, all the other nations around them. But what had happened over the years is that they put their form of religion and their interpretation and their ideas of the true God above the true God. And they were, they were careful to maintain the appearance but not the reality of sincere devotion to God. They had so blended their man-made traditions and religions with, uh, with, with what it says in Scripture about the you know, the true revealed truth of God that they could no longer tell the difference. And that's what's happened to so many churches today. They've blended their traditions and their rituals and man-made additions to Scripture that they no longer can even tell the difference between between what is true and what isn't. And so, um, this had gotten so bad that actually by the time of Jesus, his number one enemies, the number one enemies of God and the Anointed One, Jesus Christ, had become the spiritual leaders of the nation, supposed spiritual leaders. Never, ever were false teachers as aggressive as during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I went back through the four Gospels so that I could um, write some of these questions. I think number, question number three got me really looking all through the Gospel accounts. And I read all four of them over again this past week. And again, I was reminded of how ubiquitous these guys were. These false teachers. Every, they were there every time Jesus turned around. He was even out in the cornfield one time, and there they were. They popped up between the cornstalks and said, Aha! You got your disciples eating on the Sabbath. And I thought, how did they get to the cornfield without disobeying their own little rules about walking so far? <laughs> I mean they were just ever, everywhere they were all they were like a thorn in the flesh Jesus because every time he did anything or you know they there they were trying to accuse him of something but they were very aggressive and that makes sense Um, It was like all hell let loose in its assault against him. That does make sense, though, because Satan knew he had to work overtime to try to thwart the plan, the redemptive plan of God that he would accomplish through his son Jesus. And although Satan used a number of sources and means to try to do this, to thwart the plans of God, you know, he started out by trying to tempt Jesus himself in the wilderness. He used a lot of different means, but his most sustained attack against the Lord came from the incessant antagonism of Caiaphas and Annas and their cohorts in the Sanhedrin council. Now, of course, they would have bristled tremendously, you know, like porcupines, (laughs) at the suggestion that they were actually pawns in the hands of Satan. In fact, they did bristle when Jesus pointed that out to them and said, You know, they said, our father is Abraham, who is your father, you know, implying that he was a bastard. Um, And he said, you know, you're not of your father, Abraham. If you were, you would believe me. You are of your father, the devil, the devil. The fact of the matter is that Satan was the great choreographer who was staging the heinous travesty against God's son. And he was using these men as his pawns, his dupes in his relentless campaign against the truth. If there is one thing Satan hates, it's the truth. He hates to be exposed by the truth. He hates people to know the truth because the truth will set them free from him. And if ever there was truth, it was in Christ, because he is truth personified. Now, at first, it may seem almost inconceivable that the Lord's fiercest opposition would come from the most respected leaders of society's religious sector. But this is how it was. And guess what? This is how it is yet today. Jesus' main resistance did not come from the culture's underworld of criminals. Is it yet today the criminals that despise Jesus? And, you know, actually, they're harder. I mean, they're easier sometimes to reach. Have you ever been involved in a prison ministry, Peggy and others? They're, they, they're the first ones to admit, yes, I know I'm a sinner. <laughs> They're usually easier to reach than other people. And it did not come, the resistance to Jesus did not come from the secular underclass. It did not come from society's outcasts, such as lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and Samaritans. They embraced him when he embraced them. It didn't come from the underprivileged, such as the beggars, Bartimaeus. It didn't come from uh, the maimed and the blind and the poor. Where did his relentless opposition come from? It came from the elite, wealthy, educated, ruling, religious heads. It's as I said last week, the Sanhedrin Council... By the way, this week, I, again, I was reading and I, um, I had forgotten. I think I knew this a long time ago, but I forgot. Do you ever forget things that you knew? <laughs> oh... That is an understatement. (laughs) I wish I knew one millionth of what I learned over the years. But anyway, I uh, was reminded that the word Sanhedrin is actually a Greek word. It was in the name of their council, but it's a Greek word. It means sitting together. They sat, you know, the members sat together to make judgments and laws and decisions and that sort of thing. And when it met, when the 71 of them met in Jerusalem, it was called a council. But whenever they met in a local town, they all had little Sanhedrins in every little town. But um, it was then called a court. So if you're reading through the Bible and it says court, that means it's a Sanhedrin meeting in a town. They only had to have 23 members. It was always uneven, 71 or 23, because they never, you know, that would prevent a split vote. That makes sense, doesn't it? Um, but it, it means uh, sitting together. But I, was, I suggested last week that it was kind of like our Supreme Court. Except our Supreme Court, we only have nine justices, and they had, you know, 70 plus the high priest. But it would be as if our Supreme Court justices, every one of them, was also the religious figurehead, a religious figurehead of society. So you might have one Supreme Court justice who's the Pope, for example, one who maybe is the Archbishop of the Greek Orthodox Church, one who is the head of. Uh, I don't know, the, the, the Jewish, the, what, what would be the head Jewish guy? What's he called? A rabbi. They don't have a high priest anymore, do they? No, they don't have a high priest because they don't have a temple. But anyway, if, as if they were all, every single one of those nine justices was also a religious figurehead. That's what it's comparable to. And these were Jesus' worst enemies. Well, he, so we know he wasn't tried fairly by this council under the leadership of these two wicked men, Annas and Caiaphas, because of the fact that they were false religionists. They did not know the God they professed to know. Do you remember the Lord's words of John seven seventeen, where he said, If any man do God's will, he will know of my doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, he was saying that anyone who is seeking to do God's will any of those Jewish people at the time of the Lord when he came, those like Zechariah and Elizabeth and... Uh, did I say Zechariah? What was John the father, the Baptist's father's name? Zechariah or Zechariah's? Okay, is that right? sounded funny. All right. And uh, Mary and Joseph and, and Philip and Nathaniel and Peter. All those were people who were seeking to do God's will, right? So that means that when Jesus came and spoke... They knew right away that his doctrine was of God. That's, and that's true today. That's a very important verse, John 7, 17. If any man do his will, he shall know that God, Christ's doctrine is of God. Because the religionists of that day were not doing the will of God. Why? Because they were too busy trying to get their own wills accomplished. Therefore, they could not discern that Christ's teaching was of God. They weren't doing God's will to begin with. So when Jesus came along, they did not know. They could not know. They would not know that his teaching was of God. And they also didn't recognize God in him, did they? Because they really didn't know God. The Lord had also said these words to them. I had just referred to these a little bit earlier. He said, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. What were they trying to do right now? Mur- commit murder. So they're proving who their father is. And he abode not in the truth. And what were they doing? Certainly not abiding in the truth, seeking false witnesses. He said, because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. They hated that. That was back in John 8. So when Caiaphas carried on with his melodramatic show of renting his clothes and crying out, he has spoken blasphemy, Uh, what need have we further of witnesses? It wasn't because he loved God and was so horrified that God had been dishonored. It it, It wasn't because he served God. It wasn't even because he knew God. It was because he was a false religionist. Another self-deceived pawn in the hands of Satan. Interestingly, God used the evil intentions of this man when he put Jesus under oath. Because that gave even extra strength to Jesus' testimony to being both the Christ and the Son of God. Now, of course, it wasn't necessary to do that because Jesus always spoke the truth, didn't he? But when he did admit it under oath to his heavenly father, it just gives extra strength to his confession. And then, as mentioned, there was absolutely nothing they could find from Scripture to disprove his claims to Messiahship. I mentioned this last week, but I want to get into this a little bit more this morning. There was nothing that they could find to disprove his claims to being the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. Absolutely nothing. Now, they had tried over and over, and if you do go through the Gospels, you'll find this to be true. Over and over again, they were looking for some way to discredit his messianic claims before the people, to show the people he cannot possibly be our Messiah. You know the first thing that they ever did was run to the temple records and look up his, his uh, ancestors to make sure he came, you know, through the line of David and everything that had been predicted. And they did have temple records before the temple was destroyed. That's where they kept them. And we never hear a peep out of them about that, do we? Because they looked him up, and sure enough, not only does, did he have the right lineage through his mother Mary, but also even through his stepfather Joseph. And you know they would have screamed and hollered if they found out he had not been born in Bethlehem, but that too. You know, they looked up, I'm sure they did all that research, but they kept quiet because there was nothing they could find there. And also it had been predicted the Messiah would you know, um, perform miracles and all that, and they, they, they knew there was nothing there. But one thing they tried to do over and over again was um, to use the good deeds that he did on the Sabbath to demonstrate that he could not possibly be the Messiah because the most true Messiah would never break the Sabbath rules. <laughs> uh, naughty, naughty Jesus. He went around doing good things on the Sabbath day like, you know, healing that man at the pool of Bethesda, and they were just horrified. You know, the guy hadn't walked in 38 years, and they say, how can you dare be carrying your pallet on the Sabbath day? I mean, instead of being happy for the guy... They say, you know, you're carrying too much. I don't think you could carry over a thimble's worth of, I don't remember all the little silly rules and regulations that they had about how far you could walk, how what you could carry. Couldn't pull out a gray hair because that would be reaping, you know, so you didn't dare look in a mirror because you might see a gray hair. Uh, um, a pastor from Virginia called me. A couple of days ago, it was interesting, a, a retired pastor up in Virginia, and um, he got to talking to me about, <clears throat> I don't know why, it was funny because I was going to mention this, and then he brought it up, I don't even know the guy, <laughs> but he started talking about some of the silly Sabbath rules that they had, and he said, uh, one of them, He just he has been in Israel, and he said, you know, on the Sabbath from... F- Sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday is their Sabbath. And he said they, none of the elevators. They don't have the elevators operating um, on the Sabbath. So guess what you have to do instead? Walk up the stairs. That seems like more work than getting in the elevator and pushing the button, doesn't it? Oh. But then he told me, he said, you know, they, they would not even drag a chair on the Sabbath because one of the legs of the chair might... Um, make a little rut in the in the ground or the carpet or whatever, and that would be considered plowing. <laughs> and then, I don't know if this is true or not, but this man was funny. He told me, he said, you know another one I found? He said that um, they were not allowed to use bathroom, I don't know what kind of bathroom they had back in those days, but they couldn't use a bathroom inside the city of Jerusalem, inside the walls. And then uh, <laughs> They had this little rule about you couldn't walk so far on the Sabbath. So some of the people, if they couldn't use the bathroom inside the city and they couldn't walk far enough to get outside of the city, I said to this man, I would be in trouble. (laughs) i have to get up at least two or three times during the night. I don't know what I would do. I guess I'd have to move outside of Jerusalem, that's for sure. But anyway... Where was I? Was oh, that he, he went around doing good things on the Sabbath day, but then he reminded them of something. He said, hmm, what would you guys do if your expensive ox fell into a pit and it was a Saturday? Or if one of your sheep fell into a hole and it was a Saturday? Would you just let that poor little thing lay there and maybe die until, it, you know, it was Sunday? Of course, they knew that they would go and get their ox or their sheep out of a pit. And then he also reminded them, hmm, don't your priests work the hardest on what day of the week? The Sabbath. The priests would work the hardest on the Sabbath. And if one of your little Jewish boys happened to turn eight days old and it was a Saturday, what would they go ahead and do anyway? Circumcise him. Besides that, he reminded them, he had never done any to break one of God's laws regarding the Sabbath. He only disregarded some of their silly, man-made, foolish Sabbath laws. And then he threw this in for free. He said, besides all that, you know who I am? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. If anyone had a right to break Sabbath laws, it would be the one who created the Sabbath, right? Him. But even still, he didn't. He never profaned God's Sabbath. Uh, He only disregarded theirs. Um... He never, ever once broke any Mosaic law. So they could not use that. They tried to you know, discredit him before the masses by saying he broke the Sabbath, he can't be the, the Messiah, but uh, they could not use that excuse. It didn't work. They tried over and over again, but it failed. Then another excuse that they tried to use to discredit him as a Messiah was the fact that he was, all, he was always spending time eating and uh, hanging around the lowlifes of society such as tax collectors and prostitutes. You Remember when that woman came in to he uh, Simon the Pharisee had had Jesus for um, lunch after the synagogue meeting. <laughs> you know, invited him over to have dinner. And he was in Simon the Pharisee's home and in came this woman and she just was so overflowing with love to, toward Jesus that she fell down at his feet and she washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. She let her hair down. And do you know what Simon the Pharisee and all his little uh, snobby friends said? They were whispering among, among themselves saying, he can't possibly be the Messiah. If he was the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman she is. And so they tried to discredit him by saying, you know, the true Messiah would never, ever mingle with common people and even outright sinners. If he was the true Messiah, he would bend over backwards to befriend us, you know, the bigwigs of the land, the spiritually elite. But what did he say? He said, I have come to call, not to call the righteous, in other words, those who are self-righteous, but sinners to repentance. He says, they that are whole, or they that think they are whole, need not a physician, but they that are sick, those who know they are sin-sick. And so they, uh, they couldn't use that um, to discredit him before the people. The people, the common people, loved him because he did mingle with them and didn't look down his long, pious nose at them like their religious leaders did. So that would never work. And then, of course, they tried to convince the people that he performed all of his messianic works, such as casting out demons, not in God's power, but in whose power? Beelzebub, Satan's power. And in this, they committed blasphemy against God the Holy Spirit, the third and final witness of the Trinity as to the person of Jesus. They had denied the Father's witness of the Son, which came through John the Baptist, and also when Jesus was baptized. God said, spoke, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They denied the Father's witness. They had denied the Son's witness of himself himself, and now, with this declaration that his miracles were performed in Satan's power, they were also denying the Spirit's witness, which had presented itself through his miracles. So now they were without hope. Why were they without hope? Well, if you deny the witness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, got news for you there are no more divine witnesses. And so you're without hope. And their sin was unpardonable. However, there were those in the nation who did not buy into that lie. And it didn't hold up to use against Jesus, because once again, his logic silenced them. Why would Satan cast out Satan? If I'm doing these exorcisms in the power of Satan, why would Satan cast out his own dupes, his own, you know, buddies? (laughs) Why would he work, be divided, wouldn't that divide him against himself and a kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation? Furthermore, he reminded them that some of their own disciples went around casting out demons from people. So let their disciples be their judges in this declaration that it was through Satan's power he was performing his miracles. All that's found back in Matthew 12. And we never again heard this messianic disclaimer coming from the mouths of Israel's leaders again. Never again heard this, you know, um, because it didn't hold up you think all the people would believe that? How many hundreds and thousands of people did Jesus set free from demons and heal from sicknesses and all kinds of things, leprosy and even raised from the dead? Do you think all those people would believe that they had been healed or, or um, made clean because of, of Satan's power? No, you remember the man born blind in John chapter 9? He didn't buy that. They tried to say, you know, well, he's doing it uh, with Satan's power, and he said, hmm, this is an interesting thing. (laughs) God hears uh, sinners, and, you know, whenever did someone open the eyes of a man born blind, this miracle was of God. What's the matter with you guys? Can't you see? No, they were more blind than the blind man had been. And so they couldn't use that. They were stuck with absolutely no proof to use against him when it came to his claims to being the Messiah. Do you get that? They couldn't they tried everything they could think of to say you can't possibly be the Messiah. But every avenue they took didn't work. And here's another thing to throw in at this point. The Jewish religious rulers, particularly those of Caiaphas's crowd, were intent on destroying Jesus mostly because why? They hated him. They hated him. It wasn't his claim to messiahship or deity. They just plain out hated him. He had hurt their business dealings in the temple on two different occasions, siding with what most of the people already knew, which was that they were being ripped off by their spiritual leaders in the temple when they came to exchange their money or buy an animal sacrifice. They knew, the people knew, that their leaders were getting rich at their own expense. And he had become far too popular with the masses. And these guys envied that. They were jealous of him. Also, he shamed them over and over again publicly by pointing out their hypocrisy. And uh, remember that woe discourse, the denunciation discourse of Matthew 23? Uh, talk about shaming them publicly. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Over and over again he said that. Sepulchres, he called them varmint. <laughs> no, he called them vipers. <laughs> but uh, th- that was shaming them publicly. And the people in the crowds were probably going, Yeah, yes, go on, come on. <laughs> and then he beat them at every trick they had in their arsenal, you know, to, to try to use against him, to trip him up. Into saying something maybe that would contradict Moses, because they figured, well, if he contradicts Moses, then we can definitely say he can 't be the Messiah, and the people you know, people reverence Moses, which they you know should, um, so they were always trying to get him to contradict Moses. You know Moses said this, what saith you? but he, did he ever contradict Moses? Not even once. He rightly interpreted what Moses really had said. And they would try to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities. How did they do that? Well, on one occasion they said, well, should we pay our taxes? And they thought for sure he would say no, because the coin had a picture of Caesar's head on it. You know, and that would be considered idolatry to them. And Jesus came back with a profound answer. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and unto God the things that are God. And that shut them up and it certainly didn't get him in trouble with Rome. And so you know, everything they tried failed. And they were seething with anger and hatred at how he could always outsmart them. Not only with scripture, but with common sense. You ever notice that a lot of leaders don't have common sense? (laughs) And logic. He could just, you know, beat them with logic. So, he, he made them look pathetic. He was a persistent threat to them, to their security, to their power, to their prosperity. And they resented him for it. They resented him for his holiness and for his righteousness. His virtues were a constant judgment on their own characters, and they didn't like the discomfort that he caused their consciences. Having him around was just too much light on their evil, wasn't it? But how in the world were they going to put him to death with an accusation that would not turn the multitudes against them? How could they put the appearance of legitimacy on their execution of this man? They were just at their wits end. You know, according to the law, look at your uh, paper here, question number four. According to the law, Mosaic law, there were 14 crimes worthy of the death sentence. And they were premeditated murder. You would be stoned to death. Offering human sacrifices. If a Jew did that, he could be put to death, stoned to death. Adultery. Homosexuality. Participating in magic and divination. Persistent, stubborn disobedience to parents. Now that is persistent. I mean, you know, one-time disobedience, but if persistently disobedient to your parents, you could be stoned to death. Remind your children of that. (laughs) Just think, Charlie. If you were born in the Old Testament, I'd have every right to stone you to death right now. <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't live in that day? I got to looking through this, and I thought there won't be many people lives, you know, if <laughs> if we still had that. We're under that law: uh, kidnapping, profaning the Sabbath. See, that's one they tried to get him uh, guilty of sacrificing to false gods, rape, incest. Uh, Cursing or striking a parent. Bestiality. False prophecy. Unchastity or, you know, being very promiscuous. And what's the last one? Blasphemy. Now, as I thought about that list, (laughs) I realized that Annas and Caiaphas and many of the Sanhedrin members should have been put to death. Not just for one of those crimes, but for several. And I'm not going to tell you which ones I circled that they would be guilty of, because that's your question for homework. But look over that list and, and think about which ones would Annas and Caiaphas have been guilty of. They should have rightly been put to death. But for the Jews to put Jesus to death, they could not, think of this, they could not use his confession to being the Christ. Look at your list. If you profess to be the Christ, is that uh, a capital offense? It's not on there as a capital offense. Now, they had had many, many men come and claim to be the Messiah, and they didn't put them to death unless they also came and said they were the Messiah and then made a prophecy that didn't come to pass because that then would put them into the category of being a false prophet, and to be a false prophet was a... um, uh, something worthy of the death penalty. They here here was their problem. They could not prove that Jesus was not the Messiah, and they couldn't put him to death for claiming to be. Nor could they prove that he was a false prophet. Could they find anything he had predicted that hadn't come to pass? No. In fact, much of what he, would, he had predicted was actually coming to pass exactly as he said, and they were all part of it right now. (laughs) They were making it come to pass in everything that they were doing, although they didn't know that. Here's a footnote, something I thought about, another thing I thought about this past week, and that's why we're not getting into new material, because I did too much thinking. You have to pray for me not to think too much. (laughs) But uh, regarding Jesus' claims to return in the clouds of heaven, to judge this world and to reign, finally to reign and rule over this world for a thousand years and then go into the eternal state. (laughs) That claim of his. Think about this. If he does not fulfill those claims, what is he then? A false prophet. Remember John 14, 1 to 3? You know, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I will come and get you and, you know, take you to where I am. There you will be also. And all those second coming claims, if he does not fulfill them, he is a false prophet worthy of the death he received. So, do you think Jesus is going to fulfill his promises? Of course he is. Because he is who he claimed to be. Therefore, you can bank on it. He is coming again. And I do believe it could be this year. It could be today. <laughs> be all right with me. Now, if you noticed from that list of 16 death sentence crimes, it was not even a capital offense to threaten to destroy the temple. Is that on there? If you threaten to destroy the temple. But, you see, the Jews would have used it if they could have gotten those two false witnesses to say the same thing, they would figure, you see, that they could get away with that offense with the multitudes who so highly reverence their sacred place of worship. But they would have put him to death illegally because that was not a death sentence crime. Now, maybe they could lock him away for the rest of his life, but it wasn't a death sentence crime. You know, interestingly, that this is what they used to stone Stephen to death. Stephen was the first martyr of the church and the Jews in Acts 6:13 they also went out and got false witnesses to testify against Stephen and do you know what those false witnesses accused Stephen of blaspheming the temple and they stoned him to death but even then the truth of the matter is Jesus never did destroy the temple and never did threaten to destroy the temple what did he say He said, you guys are going to destroy the temple. (laughs) Now, privately, he did predict the destruction of the temple, didn't he? To his disciples, he said not even one stone would be left upon another, and that did come to pass, again proving he wasn't a false prophet. But he never threatened the temple himself. Anyhow, the only crime Caiaphas and the religious rulers could think to use was Jesus' claim to being the Son of God. And that's why we discussed last time the Lord, his quote, very important quote in, uh, what verse is it? 64, where he quoted from Psalm 110, verse 1 in Daniel 7. He was trying to show them from Old Testament Scripture that the Messiah was indeed the very Son of God. He could have used other Scriptures, he could have used such a, a, a scripture as Isaiah 7.14. You all know that one. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and what will his name be? Emmanuel, God with us. That You know, they knew that was a messianic verse. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son, he'll be the Messiah. And what is his name going to be, this Messiah? God with us? Okay, doesn't that mean, doesn't that show you the Messiah is going to be God. And then he could have tied that together with Genesis 3.15 regarding the promised seed of the woman, a miraculous birth, because women don't have seed. And... um, and, and maybe they could have been open enough to ask him questions. Said, so, ooh, that's, we never saw that before. We never realized that. Or he could have used Micah 5 two, a verse that predicted the Messiah's birthplace. They also knew this, that this was predicting the Messiah's birthplace. It says, but thou Bethlehem Ephratah. Why does it say Ephrata? Because there were three Bethlehems at the time Jesus was born, so it was making it very specific. Bethlehem Ephrata. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee he shall come forth that shall be ruled. Of Israel. I'm sorry for all this ringing I hear. So, they knew that the one who was promised to be the ruler of Israel would come out of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. But what then does it go on to say about this one who was going to be the ruler of Israel? It says, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. What does that mean? The one who's going to come and be born in Bethlehem, who will be the ruler of Israel, the Messiah, comes from eternity past. From everlasting. He is none other than eternal God. He could have quoted Isaiah 9 6, which says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Whose son? God's son. You can't give something that doesn't already pre exist. God's giving his son, who pre existed. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. What's next? Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace, who is this one? God, God, the child who's given, born, the son who's given is God. But Jesus, for his own purposes, and of course we know whatever he does is very, very wise. He chose these two scriptures from the Old Testament. Psalm 110.1 and from Daniel 7.13. Psalm 110.1 clearly has Jehovah God saying to Adonai God, Sit thou at my right hand, and I will make thy enemies to be thy footstool. Um, Remember back in Matthew 22 when Jesus asked the religious rulers the question, Whose son was the Christ to be? And immediately they knew, and they said, David's, David's son. And then he came back at them, quoting from Psalm one ten one. Then why did David call his son Lord Adonai? You see, that verse has Jehovah speaking to Adonai. A very, very important... It's going to come up again in the third trial. There will be three times Jesus, in his last few days, used that verse. It's a critical verse. Jehovah said to Adonai, and the Jews had no answer. They had no answer. They didn't like that verse. <laughs> it put them in trouble. But we know the answer. David called the promised Messiah who would come from his human lineage, his, his Lord, because he would be none other than the eternal Son of God who was given. He was the child born of a virgin in Bethlehem, Ephratah, whose going, goings forth have been from of old, of everlasting, from everlasting. He was going to be the mighty, he is the mighty God himself, Emmanuel God with us. So that's why he used Psalm 110, 1. Why did he use Daniel 7.13? Well, because in that verse, he was showing that the Son of Man, who received from the ancient of days, God, The universal, everlasting, indestructible kingdom of God was the very Son of God. Because God would not give an everlasting kingdom to a man, a mere man. He would only give it to an everlasting God-man, his Son. And blasphemy. Once they heard that, Caiaphas said, Blasphemy, what need have we of further witnesses? And if you think about that question, if you have to go, I know we're out of time, go ahead, but I'm going to just try to finish this, because this would really be pathetic if I didn't even finish the lesson I didn't, the whole lesson I didn't finish, but I didn't even finish that part of the lesson I was supposed to finish. (laughs) I don't know what's going wrong with me. But anyhow, um, if we think about Caiaphas' question In a way he never intended for it to mean, it could be really interesting. What further need have we we of witnesses? Guess what? The answer would be, you don't have any more need of witnesses. They had everything they needed. They had Christ's sinless life, didn't they? They had his teachings, they had his miracles, they had the witness of the Father, they had the witness of John the Baptist, they had the witness of the Holy Spirit, they had Christ's own confession, which was backed up by the witness of the Holy Scriptures. You know, ironically, at one point in time, back in John eight thirteen, Jesus had given testimony as to who he was, and you know what they said, these religious rulers? They said... That testimony doesn't count. You can't give testimony of yourself. It, it doesn't hold up. It's not true. And what are they doing here? The exact opposite. He gives testimony in here. They say, oh, he's, he's committed blasphemy. They're not consistent here at all. So what further need have we have witnesses? None. None. He did not commit blasphemy. It had been demonstrated in every way that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was God. All the council had to do was believe. They had no further need of witnesses. Now, if you take his his question to mean it as he, as he did intend for it to be meant, the answer would be that they really needed a whole lot more witnesses. Why? Well, because those witnesses they had come up with, and there had been many, had not yet been successful in condemning Jesus. And according to their own law, his own testimony, testimony could not be used against him. However... Caiaphas and the other evil men with him did not need further witnesses in their own eyes uh, to condemn him when all they needed was their hatred. And so their own hatred was enough to condemn him, and they did. They said he blasphemed God. But you know technically in Leviticus what blaspheming God is? It's dishonoring God or cursing God. Did Jesus, even if he was just a man, did he ever dishonor or or curse God? No. And of course, we know, even if you stretch blasphemy to mean claiming to be God, he did not blaspheme because he was indeed who he claimed to be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for the truth of your word and that Jesus truly is one we can put our whole trust in, not only for this life, but for eternity to come because he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. We love you. I pray that you'd use every woman this week to be a witness for him, his ambassador, and bring us all safely back next week for we do pray Jesus in your holy name. Amen.